You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Diana L. Paxson is a writer of fantasy living in the literary household called Grey Haven in Berkeley, California. She's the author of The Chronicles of Westria, nine historical fantasies, including The White Raven. She's the author of the story of Finn McCool. She's the author of The Hallowed Isle, which has appeared in four trade paperback volumes, The Book of the Sword, The Book of the Spear, The Book of the Cauldron, The Book of the Stone. She also writes for Marion Zimmer Bradley's Avalon series. Thank you for joining me, Apple. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Diana. I am very happy to be here. Diana, the piece you read tonight was really fascinating because it described a very technological event, a technological innovation in religious and transcendental terms. Talk about creating that kind of historical vision because, it, to my mind, you really captured the mindset of the historical perspective, but also suggest to us the scientific background. Well, I was... Uh the, the kind of historical fantasy that I write, I try to make everything as accurate as I can find out how. And so that when I get to the spiritual stuff that the reader will be inclined to believe that also. And uh, for this one, the problem was that I needed to use uh, appropriate period technology to... Uh, do something which was magical. So the magical part is knowing how to do it. There is nothing magical in the actual technique. Now, one of the things I, I really like uh, about your writing is the, the lyricism of the prose. You really create a kind of uh, a poetic and beautiful frenzy. So talk about uh, creating that kind of prose. How, how much of this flows off the tip of your pen and how much of it is in rewriting? And it, it reads aloud so well. I'm wondering if you read aloud to yourself. Uh, sometimes I do, and that, in fact, is usually the best way to catch those little irregularities. Uh, it's much easier when now that I write on a computer. Uh, I do a lot of polishing as I go along, and then when I go back, I often find that I need to rearrange the order of clauses in the sentence. That's probably one of the major. I also find that uh, there are almost always things that I can take out like extra adjectives, um, and that makes it cleaner and uh, more elegant, I think. You know, you've written a, a lot about past history, and, and I think that one of the things that's interesting about historical novels is the way that, as a science fiction apparently appears to be about the future, but is often really about the present. I think the same is true of historical fiction. So I'd like you to talk about immersing yourself in history and writing it in the modern world. Uh, I think you're quite right. And if a book is going to uh, mean something to the contemporary reader, there has to be some kind of a resonance. And so I look for stories where I can where what is going on historically 
has some um, connection, some um, resonance or echo in concerns that we have. In this one, uh, the, at the end of the 12th century BC, at the end of the Bronze Age, uh, we know from the um, from archaeology that uh, they were undergoing climate change. In this particular case, it was getting colder and wetter rather than hotter and drier. But uh, it would have caused a lot of social disruption. The other thing we know from archaeology is that at about that period in the Mediterranean, one by one all of the great palace cultures were destroyed. And for every scholar who has studied it, there's a different theory as to why and how. But it is possible that the uh, disruption in the parts of Europe that were affected more by the changing climate caused a ripple effect that eventually resulted in the destruction of the cultures in the Mediterranean. So the smith is displaced by the destruction of Tiryns, his city, and he eventually through many, what I hope the reader will find, fascinating adventures, ends up in Britain. And so so I, I'm writing this and trying to think, okay, these people, their world is changing, they don't know why it's changing, uh, they're going to have to change. Uh, how are they going to do it? Where will they find the leadership? And the, the sword is the, the destiny of the sword, and these being magical people, they have visions and dreams and all the rest of it. Uh, the priestess has, has had these visions that the sword has to be created and it has to be given to a hero who can then lead the people in to cope with all of the, the uh, changes and the villains and all the other stuff that's going on. And uh, so there's another character uh, whose fate has become entwined with that of the smith and he is the one who's going to get the sword. So after a while, I, as I was working my way along towards the end of the book, I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> he's supposed to be Obama, and <laughs> he's going to come in with a great sword and make everything right. Mm. Um, but for me, that was what made the book meaningful to write. You know, one of the things, challenges I, I'm thinking of writing historical-based fantasy is the, the plotting aspect because you want to stay true to the history on one hand. You don't want to go completely outside the realms of reality, but you also want to have that aura of the fantastic, and I think that's something you do very well with the perceptions of your characters. Thank you. Yes. It, the earlier you go, in some ways, the easier that is. Uh, I had more trouble with Ravens of Avalon which is set in the um, first century uh, and covers the, the Roman conquest of Britain. Uh, my protagonists were the Celts, and there was no way I could make the Celts win. I always try to, to, to even when it's a known history, to, to find some point in the legend where things have improved, at least. Uh, but with the Celts, I, I had too much history. <laughs> Every time I turned around, I was stuck. And uh, so that was actually rather difficult to write. One of the things that I think is um, interesting, too, is you're working in a, in a collaboration with Marion Zimmer Bradley, and this is a, you know, a, a, a 
kind of a offers a, a challenge for you. So talk about the the challenges of collaboration and creating you know worlds that are fantastic, historical, dealing with established known characters, weaving your history and your fiction together. Well, in a sense, it it's a collaboration in the sense that Marion invented the um, I, the College of Priestesses on Avalon in that particular religious tradition. Uh, she wrote, she was uh, effectively my sister-in-law. My husband had been adopted into her family, and she was a mentor, my mentor as a writer, and we were very close, and we, we started uh, Dark Moon Circle together and uh, shared a great deal. So I knew where she was coming from in the particular re- religious system that she was describing. And uh, I sort of held her hand when she wrote Mist of Avalon and provided her with some background on the Arthurian um, legend because I'd studied that in grad school. Uh, She had a stroke while she was writing The Forest House, and although she finished the first draft, it wasn't publishable, so she turned it over to me, and I took it, and Marion was not historically minded. She was fantasy minded, and she rather resented the constrictions of history. Uh, the forest house, unlike the Arthurian legend, is firmly set in history, and so there were certain things I had to do to the book to, to make it work. Uh, her health declined rapidly after that, and m- almost all of the writing in Lady of Avalon is mine, and all except four paragraphs in Priestess of Avalon is mine. So her contribution has been in ideas. And so it, it is even more writing a historical novel in the sense, even if part of the history I am working with is a history that she invented. Uh, in that sense, it was more like writing a shared world uh, story than a collaboration. Um, but as I said, um, I knew her very well, and so I have tried to write stories that I thought she would enjoy and stories that would reflect and uh, display some of her ideas. Uh, this story dis- uh, displays a really deep and thorough knowledge of, of the pagan religion, and I'd like you to talk about that religion and how it works in your story and how it works in the modern world. Um, well, I mentioned that Dark Moon Circle. Uh, Marion had, um, in the 70s, had a, a, a lot, magical lodge, a study group, based on the work of Diane Fortune. And uh, my husband and I were a part of that. Uh, out of that came a women's spirituality group called Dark Moon Circle, which is still going. And Marion and I together... Uh, learned everything we could, brought it back to the group, developed it, learned more, and and so forth. Uh, When her health failed, she withdrew from active participation, but I carried on, and that, again, developed into several other things. Uh, So my work in the pagan community has been a major part of my life, and a lot of uh, what I learn in practice goes into the books, and from time to time something I've invented for one of the books, I then draw on to work with in practice. 
You know, this is really interesting to, to see a, a, a living religion, and it must be interesting to, to participate and be part of that. Well, it is, um, and it has, it, it has been a fascinating uh, experience to watch the, the growth. We're sort of, uh, I was at a religious studies conference once, and they were talking about the patriarchal period, uh, we're of Christianity. We're sort of in the matriarchal period of uh, paganism. Um, there are is a, a lot of uh, women who have become leaders as it has developed. Uh, and the I, I ended up not only working in the the group we started in Berkeley, but I served as leader of the Covenant of the Goddess for two years, and. Uh, as my focus has moved more into the Germanic paganism, um, I've been a member of, of the Troth, which is a international heathen organization, at, for since the early 90s, and served as leader of that organization as well. And now I edit their journal, so I've had the opportunity to meet all of the the major figures in the movement and to to have a, a good overview of what's going on, how it's going on, how things are changing and developing. Talk about some of the aspects, uh, the organizational aspects uh, of the religion. How are the meetings conducted? How, are, how do people join and, and how do they express their faith together and individually? Uh, in 25 words or less. Um, the, the one thing to bear in mind is it is a... Paganism is a religion of what you might call orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. Um, there is no central authority that defines what is true, what is not true, or how you should go about doing things. It's, it's a very much uh, a religion you live. And there are also almost as many variations on how to go about it as there are groups or even individuals. Uh, the, the fact that a whole uh, subdivision of publishing has grown up in the past 20 years or so uh, means that information and ideas spread rapidly, and the Internet has been uh, even more useful. And so uh, you have a kind of shared evolution where people develop ways of doing things and uh, they meet at festivals and conferences and they observe what other people are doing, they adopt some of the things other people are doing, add them to their own practice and it, it sort of continues along that way. The ideas evolve in the same way as people share information and share insights and share uh, methods for doing things. One of the things that strikes me about um, what you're saying is that the growth of, of paganism must have closely tracked the growth of the environmental movement. It seems to me that they would be very likely tied together. Is, is that, would that correct surmise? Uh, certainly in the sense that um, paganism, which is uh, sometimes classed as an earth religion, and uh, I, I think you're correct that the awareness of, of the earth of nature, of the importance of harmony with nature, is a, an integral part of the evolution of, of paganism. And of course, p paganism is, uh, what we're talking about is uh, 
variations on the uh, pre-Christian native religions of Europe. And uh, some of these practices, that, that the modern practices, some of them sort of draw from lots of European sources. Uh, others, the, the Reconstructionist pagans, work within one culture and try to recreate its religion. But all of these native European religious traditions were strongly related to the earth and the earth powers and the recognition that if you want to get food from the earth you have to work in harmony with um, the power and the idea that everything has spirit and therefore working with the earth is, is a spiritual religious practice. Boy, you know, I gotta say that what you're talking about reminds me of a conversation I had with Michael Pollan when he talked about realizing that your food comes from the ground and you need to make sure that the ground is well prepared if you're going to eat the food. And so I'd like you to talk about what happens when paganism meets the science and the technology of the 21st century. Well, um, almost all the pagans, with one or two exceptions, um, all the pagans I know are uh, on the web and spend a lot of time with email, Facebook, and the rest of it. And in fact, I think one reason why the, uh, the religion has grown and spread so rapidly has been because of this uh, technological uh, adoption. Um, so I think that, uh, that there's also, has been from the very beginning, in fact, a very large overlap between pagans and science fiction fans. Uh, certainly, I met most of the people I initially started out with uh, through fandom, and including Marion. Um, and the uh, science fiction fans uh, read science fiction because they are interested in the idea that things don't have to be the way they are. And sometimes this means uh, scientific adoption, uh, new technologies. Sometimes it means looking to the past for old technologies and old uh, concepts. But uh, there's a strong sense that if you don't like the way the world is, you can do something about it. You can change something. I've been speaking with Diana Paxson. She's the author of the Westria Chronicles. Thank you for joining me, Diana. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.